You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. If you wouldn't mind opening your Bible to Luke chapter 2, we heard this read during our um, Christ candle reading, and uh, actually we are going to be in quite a few passages here this morning, but wanted to especially have our, our finger in that text. Um, yeah, let me, let me get situated here for a second. How are we doing with the... We're streaming now. Well, welcome. Greetings to everyone that's streaming with us, too. It's good to be with you all, and uh, thanks for joining us here for Christmas at St. John's a day afterwards, <laughs> but it works. it works out. I remember it well, this wonderful oak tree that was next to my great-grandmother's house in Kellerton, Iowa, population 315, I think if you count pets and cows and other animals as well, but, you know, it had these low branches that were perfect for access as a little guy. You know, I'd run, get out of the car, I'd greet grandma and give her a big hug, and then I feel like one of my next steps was to that tree. Maybe you have one of those sorts of favorite trees. Maybe it had a tire swing on it or turned all kinds of vibrant shades in the fall. Trees have enjoyed really a special place in nature from the mighty redwoods of California to the vibrant. And not only in nature, but though you think um, even the Charlie Brown Christmas tree, which, by the way, I'm happy to report that I got my wife a real Christmas tree this year, the Mangriches. That story checks out since we ran into each other at the tree lot. And uh, I don't know how many other split decisions we have among couples in our church as to real tree or artificial tree, but we'll just, we'll skip the the, uh, marriage counseling for later, I guess. Trees have also enjoyed a special place in the storyline of Scripture. When you think about Scripture going from the trees in the garden to the tree in the city, And in our time together here, I just briefly want us to reflect on what I'm calling the tree of life, doing so in kind of three parts as we trace this story of Scripture. And that first part is creation, corruption, and calling. Scripture begins in the first few pages in Genesis with God who created the world out of nothing, including land, vegetation, and all kinds of trees that bear fruit with seed in them. And the crown jewel of his creation was forming God in his image, or forming man in his image, and and placing Adam and Eve in the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. This included the trees, the vegetation that they they were to cultivate, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. And in the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and gave explicit instructions to eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God's intention for humankind was to enjoy a perfect relationship with him. And as we have reflected on the past few weeks, 
here at, at EBF. We know, how, we know what happened. We know that something went radically wrong. Through the sin of Adam and Eve, all humankind rebelled against its creator and used the breath that he so graciously gave them to curse him. And Adam and Eve, in this interesting twist in Genesis 3, they even used the trees to try to hide from God. In Genesis 3, 8, it says that they hid among the trees. Sin came to affect and infect everything, people, society, institutions, systems, everything. And this tension is introduced so early in the story that none of us can even comprehend his world without this tension, without this brokenness. And the curse came about as a result of humankind's rebellion. And part of that curse involved the ground, the thorns and thistles it produces, and humankind's rebellion led to immediate spiritual death, and yes, even physical death as well. But God did not leave us to our own devices. He purposed to send his one and only son. He put his plan in motion. <clears throat> and the first glimmer of hope that we're given is there in Genesis 3.15, what's called the first gospel. That the descendant of Eve would be wounded, but would deal the decisive death blow to Satan. And as you know, the story, God called a man named Abraham to leave everything that was known and familiar, and he promised him land to call his own seed or descendants, and said that through him and his offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham believed God and responded to the call to follow his lead. And true to his word, God blessed Abraham with a son, Isaac, a grandson, Jacob, whose 12 sons became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And eventually God's people cried out for a king to rule over them. And one such king is David, son of Jesse, who was plucked from a life of tending flocks as a shepherd and anointed king. And God made a promise to David that his kingdom would be established forever. But that kingdom became divided north and south, and continued to unravel. And there were some good apples among the bunch, but by and large, the kings were rotten to the core. From the once mighty tree of David's kingship, all that was left was a stump. God sent his prophets to proclaim his word and draw his leaders and people back to himself, and one such prophet was Jeremiah, who promised as we looked at the first week in Advent, who promised a righteous branch that would sprout from David's line. From this stump, a righteous branch would come. A sprout of hope would emerge. And this coming one would be a descendant of David. Then as we saw in the following weeks, Zephaniah encourages people to sing and rejoice because the Lord, the mighty warrior, would be with them. Micah speaks of a ruler from Bethlehem who would shepherd God's, plock, God's flock and be their perfect peace. And eventually the enemies of God's people triumph and the temple is destroyed and they are taken into captivity. And when some were finally allowed to return to the land, Israel was but a shadow of its former glory days. And it's in that context the prophet Malachi speaks into this situation and promises a messenger who would go before the promised one. 
at the end of the Old Testament, at the end of this story, we are left wondering what will become of God's people. Will the promised Messiah indeed come and rescue them? Life continues in hopeful anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. And as we sung, as we, as we sung several times during Advent, the song that I think perfectly encapsulates this spirit, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. A while back, Danielle and I were at a jewelry store, and the owner actually noticed that Danielle's ring was a little dull and offered to shine it up. It's amazing how much of a difference that made, just seeing the, the light dance brilliantly after shining up the ring. And the same, you know, can be said of the Christmas story. Many of us have heard it maybe so often that it can lose its luster at times. My prayer is that as we hear it again, it would dance, it would dance in brilliant light. For as the prophet Isaiah long foretold, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The very first verse in the New Testament introduces us to the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Matthew 1. Matthew, the gospel writer, links Abraham, David, and Jesus, explaining that there are 14 generations from each to each. And the genealogy ends with Joseph, who is described as the son of David. The angel Gabriel appears to Mary and says, You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So the stage is set for the story of Christ's birth found in Luke 2. And I have to admit, there are at times some misconceptions that we bring to the table when we look at a story like this, perhaps one that has become very familiar to us over the years. And so I, in, in, our, in this time, I would also love to perhaps even highlight a couple of those misconceptions. I hope this isn't like completely earth shattering. Everyone walks away going like, no, <laughs> nothing like major necessarily, but we'll get, I'll point those out here as we go along. But a Roman decree was issued for a census to be taken and instead of everyone you know, having someone come to their houses and record, they all had to go to their hometown to be registered, if you're familiar with the story. And, of course, Joseph sets off for Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. That's an important, important part of the story. With his very pregnant fiance with him. I remember back to some Allen family Christmases, and uh, we would often act out the Christmas story, it just worked out one year where I was uh, Joseph, my sister was Mary, my little brother was baby Jesus, so that made my dad the donkey. <laughs> well, one common misconception, actually, is that Mary rode on a donkey. That actually isn't in the text. There isn't anything that says that outright. Another misconception is that Mary gave birth Pretty much as soon as she got into town, we're almost given this 
were taught that like her, her water broke when she was a few miles out of town or something like that and was like ready to go. But the phrase while they were there conveys that there was a longer amount of time perhaps that, that took place. A third kind of common misconception is that there was a gruff innkeeper who threw them out because there was no vacancy. Like he, he lit up the neon sign, you know, or something like that. But the text actually doesn't even mention an innkeeper, and the word sometimes translated in actually means guest room. So there's three so far, and then maybe just one more. One final misconception has to do with the stable. Hmm. Did your mother ever tell you, close the door, were you born in a barn? My smart-alecky response was, Jesus was. Well, that may also be a common misconception. With all of his family connections and his pregnant fiance, Joseph most likely was welcomed into a home in town. And you have to understand some of the first century Palestinian context, what the homes were like. Often a large living area where people spent time with one another, they ate and slept, and adjacent to that was where the animals were kept at night. And during the day, they would be led outside, and so there would be a, a wooden manger there for the animals to feed while they were inside. Some homes had guest rooms that were attached as well on the opposite side, away from the animals. And so Mary and Joseph most likely were welcomed into a home, but that guest room was occupied, so they gave birth in the common area where everyone else was in the living room, wrapped the baby in cloths and used that wooden manger as a crib. The story turns, though, to the shepherds who were in the fields watching over the flocks. We heard this in the, the, the big picture story Bible. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and basically freaked them out and said, do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And I believe that that phrase captures the storyline of scripture. It is good news of great joy for all the people. The angel said, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. And here is yet another connection with David. He is the Messiah, the Lord. Today in the town of David, you will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly, Myriads of angels appear, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. And as soon as the angels disappear, the shepherds race into town, find Mary, Joseph, and the baby, the baby lying in a manger. And they spread the word to all that they could find. And I believe it is significant. It is significant that the first people to hear the news of Christ's birth were shepherds. And this links the newborn child's identity with the shepherd king, David. And the shepherd prophesied in, Mount, in Micah chapter 5. And it shows how the good news is for everyone. It's available from those in the lowest in society, like the shepherds, to those perhaps revered in society, like the magi, who would later come and worship and bow down. And so let us celebrate the mystery of the incarnation God taking on human flesh. It is indeed good news of great joy for all the people. 
Behold the star of Bethlehem. The word of God has become flesh. Unto us a child is born, the savior of the broken world. You know, it's so easy to get wrapped up in the celebration of of Christmas, the lights, the cards, the parties, the gifts, that we lose the mystery and the wonder of the word becoming flesh. Jesus left the glory of heaven to experience humanity. He walked among us, was tempted like we are, but he never sinned. The sounds of sawing and hammering were common in the household of a carpenter. And when the time was right, he began his earthly ministry, calling people to follow him and and teaching them what it means to love God and love one another. Jesus fully embraced why God sent him to earth. He was born so that he might die. Jesus resolutely set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what lay before him and told his followers what was about to happen. And as he entered Jerusalem, the people cut palm branches from the trees, waved them and shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. But as the events of the week unfolded, Jesus was betrayed, arrested, tried, and sentenced to death. The Romans mocked him by twisting together a crown of thorns and driving it into his head. And they stripped him and put a purple cloak on him as a symbol of royalty. They placed a staff in his hands uh, as a mock scepter of sorts and said, Hail, King of the Jews. They then ripped it out of his hands and, and beat him over the head with it as they then led him away to be crucified. And Jesus, crucified on a cruel Roman cross, he took upon himself the sins of the world and bore the wrath of God. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus became the curse for us. And the tree that was intended to be his death instrument has become for us the tree of life. For on the third day he rose again from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all. And he has given his community, his followers, the task of sharing, proclaiming his good news to the ends of the earth. Isaiah 52, 7 says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. We have the privilege and responsibility of carrying this life-giving message of hope to the ends of the earth. And we are called to remain connected to Jesus and bear fruit that demonstrates that we belong to him. Otherwise, as John the Baptist warned us, the ax is at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear fruit will be cut down and cast into the fire. And so let us remain rooted built up and established in the faith, as Paul writes in Colossians. Even as the good news spreads, we recognize that we live in a time between his first coming and his second coming. A day is coming when all creation will be perfectly and ultimately restored. And to those who are victorious, to those who have received the greatest gift of all, God will give the right to eat 
from the tree of life that is found in paradise. Revelation 22 reminds us too that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And as we often sing in the song, Joy to the World, God will reverse the curse. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Oh, let us look forward to that day. And in the meantime, in that in-between, may he find us faithful to carrying that life-giving message of hope to the ends of the earth. Go, tell it on the mountain. Friends, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. Christmas is not complete without the cross. Christmas is not complete without the cross. The Messiah was born as a helpless baby, but went to the cross that you and I could be forgiven, renewed, restored. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Christmas is not complete without the cross. And so in light of this great truth, let us be reminded that we are called to receive this greatest gift of all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thanks be to our God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. For he himself is our peace. Receive the greatest gift of all by recognizing first that God created you in his image and that we are accountable to him as our God, as our creator and Lord. We rebelled against God and our sin separated us from him. But God acted to save us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we must be saved by repenting of sin and believing in Jesus. Receive the greatest gift of all. And one more thing. Especially if you are the kind of, that likes physical and tangible reminders at times. Here's my challenge. I guess it only pertains to those that maybe have a real tree this year. After Christmas is over, take that tree. I'm giving you permission to chop it up. Take that tree, lop off the branches, cut off about that top third of the tree, and turn it, and with rope, transform it into a cross. Put it in a prominent place, a place perhaps where you or your family might see it, whether it's in your comings and goings or whatever works best for you. But here's my challenge. Let's transform our trees into a cross, perhaps from now until Easter. 
to remind us of this great truth that Christmas is not complete without the cross. The Messiah was born that he might die. Display it as a physical and tangible reminder of God's great love in sending his dear son. And let it remind you that this is good news to be shared, not to be kept under wraps. Christmas is not complete without the cross. The instrument of Christ's death has become for us the tree of life, peace on earth, and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we celebrate the birth of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we recognize that you came to earth to experience humanity, to suffer and die and rise again so that we could be rescued from sin and reunited with our Father. Lord, would you open our hearts to receive you, the greatest gift of all. And may we carry this good news, this life-giving message of hope to the ends of the earth. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.